John chapter 2. We have made it out of John chapter 1. John chapter 2. Remember, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in believing in him, you might have life through his name. And John, his gospel is organized around proving that, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he is the promised Messiah of Israel, and that we have life if we will trust in him. And so he organizes his letter And his way to prove that is by giving personal testimonies of individuals who said, it's true, everything is true about who he is. He also will include things Jesus did that only God could do, and things Jesus said that only God can legitimately claim. And so we are at this point now when we get to John chapter 2, where Jesus has six disciples that we know of. John spent chapter 1 recording their personal testimonies that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah, and that we need to place our trust in Him. But John, again, uses more evidence than personal testimonies. He records things Jesus did that only God can do. And chapter 2 begins with the first of those signs, turning the water into wine. So chapter 2, we begin in verse 1. It says, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And his brother said unto the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Now, we get the setting first off, and it tells us that on the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The third day here would be three days after the events at the end of chapter 1. So three days after Jesus' encounter with Philip and with Nathanael. Three days later, there was a marriage, literally a wedding festival in Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana is a small village about nine miles north of Nazareth. So it shouldn't be surprising that Jesus was invited and that Mary is already there. Now, what's interesting is John, when he writes his gospel, he never calls Mary by her name. He always calls her the mother of Jesus. He doesn't tell us why. Perhaps a good reason, though, that he may have done this is because out of respect. If you remember, he adopted Mary as his mom when Jesus on the cross gave John the responsibility of caring for her. That's one of the reasons that we know that Jesus' father, earthly father, Joseph, was dead by the time the cross comes around because Jesus had the responsibility of caring for Mary, and therefore he was dying. He needed to pass on that responsibility to someone else. I do find, if you're not familiar with it, in John, he turns to Jesus uh, while he's on the cross. John's there, Mary's there, and he turns to Mary, and he said, woman, behold your son. And he turns to John and says, you know, John, behold your mother. In other words, he gives her the responsibility, which is interesting to me because it means Jesus didn't trust his brothers to take care of the job like he trusted John. Side sermon, do what you want with that. (laughs) Blood does not necessarily make someone the most responsible individual to take care of something. I'll leave that grenade to blow off how it needs to. (laughs) That she is already at the wedding feast and means she's either related to the bride or the groom or the family of the bride or the groom, or she's a close friend, 
because she's there from the beginning, and we're going to see later she's ordering the servants around. She knows details. So she's clearly connected to this family, which is why Jesus was invited. Now, again, Joseph is never mentioned in the Gospels after he and Mary leave Jesus behind at the temple when Jesus is the age of 12. Most people believe Joseph died in the intervening years between the start of Jesus' ministry and that event when Jesus was 12 at some point there. Uh, we can't know for sure because the Bible doesn't say. It's worthless to try to figure it out. Weird things have propped up about Joseph. Don't be weird. Verse 2, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the wedding festival. He was invited. His disciples were as well. Now, were the disciples invited because they were Jesus' disciples? or they invited prior to meeting Jesus. Now, you might be saying, well, probably prior because they've only been Jesus' disciples for like three or four days. Despite that, the collective use of their name, his disciples here, shows they were invited because of their connection to Jesus. Back then, two invitations were sent out when you had a wedding. It's not like we do it today. You get an invitation, there's a date, and you need to set aside this date because the wedding's coming. That is not how it happened back then. Back then, they would send out an invitation, hey, a wedding is coming. A wedding celebration is coming. And the reason they would do that is because when that agreement was made, the son, the groom at the time, he would have to go prepare a place for the bride. And the wedding could not take place until the father of the groom said, you've done a good job, son, go get your bride. And then when that would happen, the father would approve. Then usually it'd be an add-on to what was going on with the family. The father would approve, and then he'd gather his groomsmen, and they would go through the town shouting and proclaiming, I'm going to get my bride. The wedding is coming. The wedding is coming. And then he would get the bride. They would come back. They would have a small ceremony, and then they would celebrate. And so when that happened and the news was going out, a second invitation would go out. So this one would be to tell you everything's ready and the start date is this day, tomorrow or whatever, three days from now or two days from now. And then they would compel you to attend. You need to come. Yeah, but I was planning on doing this this week. Yes, but you need to be there. This is going to be a special time and we want to bless them with that. And they would compel you to say you're coming. So Jesus, because of his connection through his mom to both families, he had probably been invited earlier in the initial invite. But then when Jesus returns to Galilee as a rabbi, he's got a different status now. And so when the second invitation came through, the person that would be informing him would notice Jesus has disciples now. And he would also invite them to come too, because it would be insulting to invite a rabbi, but not his disciples. So that's why they're there. And we note here, they're there to see what happens when something goes wrong at the feast. Verse 3, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. So there's a problem. The, the phrase, when they wanted, means the wine was failing, it was falling short, they were going to run out. And Mary comes and says to Jesus, they have no wine. It means there's, there's, they possess no wine to pull from, there's no reserves to pull from, and there's no foreseeable reserves in the future that they can get any. And she tells Jesus this. Now, a few thoughts here to share with you. First off, Wedding feasts could last up to two weeks back then. They usually lasted a week, sometimes less if you couldn't afford to do a full week, but sometimes more. 
And the reason for that is because they believed that these would be, whatever time you spent, would be the best week or two of your life. And it was all downhill from there. (laughs) Not downhill marriage-wise, or not downhill because you're married, but the idea is you can't just celebrate for the rest of your life. Now you're going to have to go do the work, right? You're going to have to go out and provide. You're going to have to take care of the children that will come inevitably from the marriage relationship. And you're going to have to invest. And so it's going to be a lot of hard work. So the idea was this was going to be the most relaxing, the most celebratory, fun time that you would have together to enjoy with your friends and your family. And then after that, it was time to get to work. So running out of food or drink before the end, it would ruin what was supposed to be the best days of a couple's life. So this was going to be a tragedy for this couple. Second thought, knowledge of the tragedy would not be made public at first. In fact, if we read the rest of the account, we will see that none of the guests knew what was going on. They had no clue that the wine was running out. Which brings up the question then, how does Mary know? Again, Mary must be a close friend or relative to have this information. She's more than just a guest. She has a personal investment in preventing this tragedy. She cares about these people. Thirdly, why does she bring this information to Jesus? What does she think he can do about it? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Mary's thinking, so I'll throw a few things out there, but I can't be sure. But I can tell you this. She has to believe. She has to be convinced that Jesus cares and that Jesus can do something to remedy the problem. Otherwise, there's no reason to bring it up to him. She has to believe he cares and that he has the capability to remedy the problem. Now, Jesus' reply to her gives us a hint that he thinks she expects him to do something supernatural to remedy the problem. Because his response is in verse 4, Jesus says to her, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. Now, woman, we would not use that phrase today. It would be considered rude. While that's in our culture is true, this was the word that you would use in Greek when you're being polite. Now, Jesus didn't speak Greek, so I don't know what word he used, but John is translating it into Greek, so he's using a respectful term. In our language, it'd probably be better to translate this into English, miss or madam or ma'am or lady. I mean, uh, any of those terms, depending upon a time period in our history, would be appropriate term of politeness or respect to someone who's a female. Jesus is not being disrespectful to her. He's being respectful. In fact, I have a son. When he heard me teach this for the first time, or heard someone teach it for the first time, ever since then he calls his mom, woman. <laughs> he's, I'm being respectful. And it's, it's a cute thing. Don't do that unless they're in the know. <laughs> so, madam, miss, ma'am, what have I to do with thee? Again, it sounds rude. It's not rude. This is also a common Hebrew phrase 
to show you're on a completely different page than someone else. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see it all the time. Probably one of the best examples is in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10. When Remember when David's fleeing from Absalom, and he's got his crew that's fleeing the, the palace, fleeing Jerusalem with him? And, and while he's fleeing, I think his name's Shimei, he's a Benjamite, so he's a Saul loyalist. He comes out on the hilltop, and he starts throwing rocks at David and his men, and he's yelling at him and saying, yeah, this is what you deserve what's happening to you because you, were, you killed Saul. Of course, none of these things are true. They're all false and it's all disrespectful. And so David, he's, he's enduring this, this brow beating and the rocks being thrown at him. And he has two nephews who are army guys. And David's an army guy. And they look at David and they go, you want us to shut this guy up by lifting his head up from his shoulders? And David's response is interesting. He goes, interesting. He says, what have I to do with thee, thou sons of Zeriah? that plan is, you could be further away from what I'm thinking right now. We are not on the same page. That's what this means. The idea here is that Jesus is saying, I do not see the situation the same way you do, Mary. Now, I do wonder what it was like for Mary when Jesus suddenly shows up with six disciples. I mean, the angel comes and visits you, and then you're now, you have this child and you're under suspicion of being unfaithful to Joseph or maybe that you and Joseph couldn't wait. And as a result, you've got all this suspicion that Jesus is born out of wedlock and all these things. And you grew up that way. And, you, and even if you told people, they didn't believe you, right? So I do wonder what it was like when Jesus shows up and for the first time in his life, he looks like he's starting to act like who the angel said he would be. So I wonder... I wonder if her and Jesus had a conversation. I know they did because the language here, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet. The, the way the language is worded, it's a continuation of a previous disagreement. In other words, they've had this disagreement earlier about how he should handle revealing himself and being the Messiah. So maybe when she returned and with the other disciples, she goes, oh, you're starting it up. All right, time to let everybody know. I'm a good mom. I'll make sure I get the word out. I'll be your PR girl, whatever. I don't know how it worked. I have no clue how the conversation went. But at some point, the conversation became a disagreement. I'm not going to do it that way, Mom. Well, you need to do it that way. No, I'm not going to do that way, Mom. So this is a continuation of that where she's saying to him, it's time. And he's going, it's not. It's not time. We could not be farther apart in how you want to approach this and how I plan to approach this. My hour is not yet come. John always uses this word, Jesus' hour, his hour, to refer to the crucifixion, his arrest, his, his beating, all the, 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 the suffering he went through, and then the cross. John always uses it to refer to that. But Jesus uses that phrase, my hour, to refer to different important moments in his life. For example, in John chapter 4, verse 23 through 26, so just a, a flip over, he's telling the woman at the well, he says in John 4, 23, but the hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the, spirit of the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. So he, she's, he's explaining this you know, to the woman of the well, and the woman says to him, well, I know that Messiah is coming, and, which is called the Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. He'll, he'll tell us what we need to do. And Jesus says to her, I am... I that speak unto thee am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm telling you what to do. 
So there was this revelation where he reveals himself to someone. There was an hour that he says, it's coming, but it now is for you because I'm standing in front of you and I'm telling you what you need to do. So there are different important moments where Jesus does unveil himself and proclaims who he is to someone. Don't let anyone ever tell you Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. The Bible never says Jesus is the Messiah. I just read it to you. So what Jesus is saying is that this is not one of those pivotal moments. I'm not ready to do that yet, Mom. Even though that's what you want, that's not what I'm planning to do. Now, I bring this up because sometimes we can see Jesus' reaction. He's like, you might say, what business of that is mine? It's not my wedding. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not that Jesus didn't care. It's not that he didn't want to help. It's that there's more going on in her statement than just, hey, they ran out of wine. You got any ideas? There's more going on here. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you thought to yourself, I know exactly what God needs to do. I know what God needs to do here. Such and such would be perfect. How many times does God do what you suggest to him? For me, that number is really close to zero. Too often, the reason it's close to zero is because too often what I want is wrapped up in what I think God should do. In other words, it's not my will being submitted or in line with his will, but my will, I'm trying to get God to submit to it. And that's why God doesn't take my suggestions. Because me wanting something fogs the mirror of what is truly the best solution to a situation. And that's what's going on here with Jesus and Mary. This isn't just about the wine or the couple for you, Mary. This is about what you think I should do concerning my kingdom. And we are very far apart on how that should play out. Now, not only is it that Jesus, it's not that he doesn't want to help or that he doesn't care, it's Jesus isn't refusing to help. Mary wouldn't say what she does in verse 5 if she thought Jesus meant that. I'm not helping. No, Jesus is just refusing to do this her way. And oh, what a challenging lesson that is for us. But it's one we all need to learn. And some of us need to relearn it over and over and over. Too often our prayers look like this. God, here's my situation. And you can do A, B, or C, but I prefer B. And then when God doesn't take any of those options, we either panic, or we get mad at Him, or we lose hope in Him. So, learning (laughs) that God loves me, that God is all-wise, and that God is perfectly capable of keeping His promises, that's what brings us true peace. That's what brings us into that place of of rest. You know, I wonder how many times I pray and Jesus smiles and says, what have I to do with you, Will? You and I see this situation so very differently. So how about you drop the expectations and just rest in who I am and rest in what I've promised? I will tell you this, I'm a much happier and nicer will when I do that. Well, Mary receives Jesus' point. Your way instead of mine is fine. Do what you think is best. And then she relays that to the servants. His mother says to the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Now, servants here is misleading. It's not the normal word for like bond servant or slave or house servant. Uh, That's the word doulos in the Greek. This is the word that we get our word deacon from, the ministers. So these were the people responsible for the food and drink. You might call them caterers. I, I don't know what their official 
role is connected to this couple, but these were individuals that were not slaves. They were, this was their job. And so they were responsible for the food and the drink. And she turns to them and says, whatsoever he says, which literally should be translated, if he should say something to you, do it. Now, the way it's written, if, it's an if-then statement where she expects him to say something to them. In other words, while Mary submits to Jesus helping or not helping, she kind of gets the read from Jesus that he does have something in mind. And Jesus did. Verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. The word there for purifying, it's a reference to how Jewish families would keep a a water pot or a jug in their dining areas. If you were wealthy enough to have like a lobby or like a foyer area, they would keep one there too for guests when they arrived. And the water was used to wash your hands or your feet during special occasions and, of course, before dining. Now, the washing was not just the traditional mom telling all the kids, wash your hands, but we're going to eat dinner in 10 minutes, go wash your hands, everybody wash your hands. Do they still do that? My mom did that with me. This was considered a washing that was a religious activity. The rabbis had given specific instructions that you washed in a special way. For example, you had to have your your arm in a certain direction each time you you washed, and there would be a numerous amount of times you had to do this so that the water would run off and whatever unclean things were on you would wash off completely so that you wouldn't engage in eating in an unclean manner. So the rabbis gave instructions to do that, and then you would do that to be purified rather than just to be physically clean to eat. So it was a religious activity. That's why I remember when I was a young believer, and I would read my Bible, and it would talk about the disciples, how the religious leaders came to them, and they said, how come your disciples don't wash before they eat? And I'm thinking, yeah, how come you don't listen to mom? It's not that they weren't slobs or they didn't clean themselves before they ate. They didn't perform the ritual washing because it's not in the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible say you need to do that. But the rabbis had extrapolated their, all their purification ideology and all the, the baggage they put on you to keep the law. And so they told you to do that. And well, they started following Jesus, and apparently Jesus said, you don't need to do that because the Bible doesn't say so. So they didn't. So this water was used, these big stone jars were used for washing your feet, washing your hands. Now, a firkin is about nine gallons, so this is a total of 100 to 150 gallons of water he asked them to to fill up, because it says they fill them to the brim. Now, these guys had no idea what Jesus was going to do with the water, but they didn't question him, nor did they slack off. I mean, they filled it to the brim. They followed his instructions all the way to the top of those jars. Now, that's a good point. Because there will be many times that Jesus tells you and me to do things, and we won't know why. We had a few words that were disallowed in my family. One of them was why. The other one was mine. But why was disallowed. Now, it's not that our kids were not allowed or aren't allowed to inquire why, but the response of, like when I was a kid, my, hey, mom, can I go to so-and-so's house? No. Why? That defiant response is not allowed. You'll never get an answer that way. In contrast, if our, one of our kids would say, hey, I, I hear what you're saying, mom, I hear what you're saying, dad, I'm gonna obey you, but could you possibly explain why so I can understand better? Then we have a conversation, right? 
Because you're doing it the right way, you're showing a right attitude. You're not being prideful and stubborn and self-willed, which is always going to get us in trouble because we do that with the Lord sometimes. The Lord says, do this. Why? I don't see any benefit in doing that. Why would I do what the Word says there? It makes no sense to do what you say there. God, if I do that, it's going to be bad. Why? That's the wrong attitude. Now, there are times with our kids when they would do it the right way, and even then we would say, I just need you to trust me on this one. I'm just, I don't have a good reason that you would think would be good, but I feel strongly that this is not, not what I want you to do, and I need you to trust me and obey me. And there will be times when the Lord does that. There'll be times you'll read the Word and go, oh, okay, I see that. And then there'll be other times that God will tell you to do something, and you just got to trust Him. You won't know why. And sometimes His instructions, they might even seem menial or wearisome or even useless. But here's the kicker. Jesus, what he is doing doesn't have to make sense to you or me because he is the one who has the ability to turn water intended for washing into wine that can be consumed. In other words, he doesn't operate by the same rules we do. So you don't have to understand for it to actually make perfect sense. His path to his destination can look very different from the logical path you would design to get to that destination because he can do things you can't. This is why leaning on our own understanding is a bad idea. I need to trust what God says in his word because he's not me, he's God. Something Jesus is about to prove by what he does next. Look at verse eight. And he said unto them, draw out now. The phrase draw out actually means draw the water out and bear it, carry it to the governor of the feast. And they did so, they carried it. Now, the governor of the feast would be the head waiter. His duty was to arrange the tables and the food, taste everything beforehand. This would not usually be like a head caterer. This would usually be one of the guests. And this would be their honored role was to kind of be the, we have a wedding coordinator type thing. They would coordinate the food and stuff. Now, he tells them, draw out the water. That's what the word draw out means, draw out the water. In other words, it was still water when they began to carry it to the head waiter. That makes Jesus' second command to them even more challenging than the first one. Because what they're about to carry to the head waiter is still water when they pour it in. I've been involved in restaurant business for years before I was a full-time pastor. And if I was ever doing a catering project and they said, hey, why are you putting water bottles? They, they ordered Coke or they ordered juice for the kids, whatever. And they'd say, well, all right, all right, trust me. I'd be like, no get the Coke, get the, get the juice. What are you doing here? But they do trust him. The miracle occurred in transit. At some point between pouring the water and then going for the walk to the head waiter, that's when it changed. And yet they, it says they bear it. They carried it to him. Can you imagine what must have been going through their minds when they left those pots? And yet they did what Jesus said. Now, think for a moment what they had compared to you and me. Because the cross hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And they certainly didn't know the love of Christ or salvation. But they obeyed him. Guys, we have way better reasons to obey Jesus way better reasons to trust him. He is worthy of our trust. He loves us. You know, he saved us. So will you trust him? 
Will you obey him? Well, what happened when these servants get to the head waiter? Verse 9. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and then when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But you have kept the good wine until now. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, the word there made means having come to exist as. So they took water, but at the point he got it, the head waiter got it in his hand, it was, had been made into wine. And at that time, it existed as wine. Previously, it existed as water, but the time, by the time he got it, it now existed as wine. So somewhere along the walk to the head, head waiter, whoosh. Hydrogen and oxygen became a different combination of hydrogen, oxygen, and now a new element, carbon. Now, you would need to ask a, a vineyard owner what it would take for him to turn six jugs of water into wine, and I'm guessing that's not their normal process. But given the right supplies and enough time, they could probably make something resembling wine out of well water. But that's not what happens here. Jesus does one of two things here. Either he pulls from existing materials in creation and reforms the water into wine, or he supersedes the laws of nature by poofing something that did exist and then creating something new in its place. Either way, no mere human being could wield the power to make wine exist where water previously existed. No human being could do that. Now, when the headwater tastes the wine, he doesn't know it came from the cleaning water jugs. I'm sure he found out later because the verb John uses here to say that he didn't know where it came from, it's in a verb tense that means his ignorance only lasted for the duration of the event. And my guess is probably the servants at one point were like, dude, we need to tell you where this came from. But because the servants didn't initially tell him what Jesus did, Instead of asking for Jesus when he tastes it, he calls for the bridegroom to compliment him. Look at verse 10. He calls for the governor feast, called for the bridegroom, and he says unto him, every man at the beginning of the wedding feast sets forth the good wine, the, the, the expensive stuff. And then when men have well drunk, in other words, when they've drunk freely, it doesn't mean when they're wasted, that's not what's going on here. The idea is when people are full, their cravings are satisfied, their expectations are met, then usually guys serve the, the cheaper stuff. But you now, you've kept, the word there kept means you've been guarding or keeping safe the good wine until now. Uh, I get to officiate uh, at weddings, which does give me a bit of a backstage view of what's going on. And it's always funny watching caterers and other things. You, know, you see the wedding, everything looks great, but of course you don't see the panic that's going on behind the scenes. We forgot this! Or the caterers are like, what happened to the sweet potatoes? If the caterers find a few containers of green beans that don't look as good, they save those for last so that the people's first impressions are based on their best product. Things weren't any different back then. Uh, just give Cousin Eddie the watered-down stuff. He's half asleep by this point anyway. Saving the best wine, the most expensive stuff, toward the end of the feast would be considered sparing no expense, and it would be considered doing a great honor to all of your guests that you would go all out like that. So this was going to now, what was a tragedy is now like, this is going to be something people are going to talk about. Like you guys, you're really special, you know, that, that you would treat us like this. 
So tragedy averted, good job, Jesus, except no one's congratulating Jesus, right? The only people who know what Jesus did are the servants, probably Mary, and of course, the disciples. Now, that's what Jesus wanted to do. He wanted it that way because he wasn't ready to openly proclaim himself as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah. But it does end up having an impact on his disciples. Look at verse 11. This beginning, so this is the first miracle Jesus ever did. This beginning of miracles, the word here, miracles, actually is the word signs. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. The reason John chooses the word for signs instead of miracles here is because the word signs puts more emphasis on the significance than the wonder. When we see the word miracle in the Bible, then usually it's referring to wow or the amazement factor of it. But when you use the word sign, it's the so what? So what? What's the significance? Yes, Jesus either reforming water into wine from existing materials or poofing the water and then creating the wine is amazing. But there's a point behind the miracle, the wonder. And John includes this first miracle Jesus did instead of a bunch of other ones because this first miracle gives us a peek into Jesus' divinity because it says, this beginning of signs Jesus did, and he manifested forth his glory. To manifest forth means to cause something to become visible that was before covered up. That phrase is glory. One linguist says it refers to Jesus' divine attributes. Jesus took the veil off of his divine attributes for the disciples. J.C. Ryle says this, Jesus for the first time lifts the veil which he had thrown over his divinity in becoming flesh, and he revealed something of his almighty power and Godhead. These guys got a peek into who Jesus is in his glory. The point of the sign is that these six men who decided to follow Jesus, who'd already declared their belief that he is the promised Messiah, he's the Son of God, this miracle, this sign caused them to double down. He is him. He's the one. He is who we thought he was. And it strengthened their faith. And hopefully it strengthens ours. Now, as we close this out, I got a few minor points to make and then one big point to make. First off, a minor point. Jesus clearly, from his involvement in the wedding festival, cares about marriage issues, including your marriage's happiness. Now, when we do premarital counseling, we're hearing something common these days from especially young couples, and it's this, marriage is awful. We're consistently hearing that from our young couples, which means some of you married people are telling them that. <laughs> Paul did teach that marriage does bring concerns. He says, if you're single, you don't have these concerns. If you're married, you do. Because, well, you get married, you do need to invest into your spouse. You can't just free for all, live how you were living before. You do have to invest in your spouse. That's a sacrifice. If you have children, which happens with most families, then you need to invest in your kids. That's a sacrifice. You have to make sure you have the finances required to invest in your spouse and your kids, right? So, 
those relationships and those needs will be challenging at times. You are taking on added responsibility. Jesus' miracle here is certainly not eliminating all of those challenges for this couple, but it does provide them joy and memories. When you look at God's establishment of marriage, it starts off when he says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. And you make a clean break with your family relationships before, and then you need to cleave permanently to your spouse. I'm permanently committed to you, not going anywhere. If you don't do those two things, you'll be lucky if your marriage lasts. Now, most of us, that's what our goal is. We just got to make it last, right? I, I got to make sure I don't kill them or leave them, right? But those are not the only principles that the Lord gives in Genesis chapter 3. That's just to have a marriage that survives. And if you're struggling in your marriage to survive, you need to evaluate, have I made a clean break with my parents, my siblings, and my, my friendships, and am I permanently super glued to my spouse? Am I committed to them above all else? Aside from the Lord, of course. But the next thing he says, and the two shall become one flesh. The third principle of marriage is not just to leave and to cleave, but then it's to be unified. The idea is that we can't be two married people still acting like we're single. God's plan now for us is together, and we're going to move forward. Now, it doesn't mean everywhere you go, you're joined at the hip, and you never do your own thing. That's not the point, but the idea is we're moving forward together. God brought us together to accomplish something, something we couldn't do if we were single and, and continue to do things separately. And so, that's a third principle of marriage is not just to survive, but to be useful, to accomplish things for, for God. And whether that just concerns your family or, or, or your neighbors or whatever, the point, I don't know what God's plan for you as a married couple is, but that's part of the, what God designed marriage for and what he has planned for you. And then lastly, we get to this part, the happiness part. And the two were there naked and unashamed, the man and the woman. We don't walk around naked for a reason. We also don't bear ourselves to everybody for a reason. Marriage is designed to be the one place that you have that other person that you standing looking at each other and there's no walls, there's no, no fear, there's no shame. That there's the acceptance of one another, warts and all, flaws and all, and there's an embracing of sharing life together. That is also what God designed marriage to be. I've heard pastors say, God designed marriage to be holy, not happy. That's not biblical. It's half biblical. God did design marriage to be holy and to sanctify you. But he also wanted to bring us joy. And to give up on that and fall short of that and build up the walls and be like, that's just not going to be for us. You are being disobedient to what God has in store, and you're also acting in unbelief and saying, well, God doesn't have that for me. Now, I realize that it takes two to tango, but you can handle you. And so, my encouragement to you is this. Happiness is something that God wants for you in the midst of the challenges marriage will bring, and He will give you supernatural help to accomplish that. So if you're somewhere on that, the, those four principles, the scale of those, and you're surviving, but you're not experiencing usefulness or intimacy, that close friendship, 
If you're not experiencing that, then I want to encourage you this morning to go to the Lord and to say, Lord, I don't want to cut you off from that. I don't want to lose hope for that because of all the hurt I've experienced. I, I love what I do. I don't find fulfillment in what I do. I love my kids, but I don't find fulfillment in them, even though they are, bring lots of joy. And ultimately, I love my wife and my fulfillment comes from Jesus. But there's something to be said for not going through life alone. And if someday God were to ask me to leave all this behind and say, I just want you to hold that, that lady's hand and be happy, I would be perfectly content to do so. That's what God wants us to be. And we didn't get there because it was all peaches and cream and happiness. We hurt each other. We violated boundaries. We said things we shouldn't have said. We scarred each other. We were not there for each other at times. We've done all those things. But through the Lord's supernatural help, like he gave supernatural help here, and trusting him, he's brought us to a place where we enjoy that true biblical intimacy, that happiness, the joy that comes from what God designed marriage to be. And he could do that for you as well. That's my minor point number one. Number two, we do need to address the Jesus and alcohol thing. You said, that's a minor point too? Yes, because it's not the main thrust of the teaching. John's not giving a teaching on marriage here. He's not giving a teaching on alcohol use, which is to be remembered if you're going to somehow try to give a teaching on alcohol use. Does this miracle prove that Jesus is in favor of alcohol usage? To say that Jesus is in favor of drinking alcohol because of this text ignores the clear teaching of Scripture about alcohol usage. So what does the Bible say about alcohol? Well, we've got about 52 minutes to the Israel meeting. So here we go. No, three things, real easy. You can study it on your own. Number one, alcohol has boundaries. Alcohol usage has boundaries. The Bible's super clear about that. Number one, it has boundaries. Drunkenness is always off limits. It's always sinful okay? It's off limits. Secondly, part of, so this first point is there are groups of people that are not allowed to drink. In the Old Testament, if you were a priest or if you were a Nazarite, you took a Nazarite vow, you were not allowed to drink. In the New Testament, if you're a pastor, you're not allowed to drink, period. Okay? So it has boundaries. Number two, the Bible gives strong warnings about the danger of alcohol usage, that you could become a slave to it, and it's wiser to stay away. Those warnings become even stronger if you're in a position of responsibility, especially if you're a religious leader or if you are a political leader. The Bible has a lot to say about that, that they are not for those individuals. So strong warnings that it's a danger. Thirdly, it tells us that we must not drink anything that would cause a brother to stumble, which means if you do decide to consume alcohol, you must consider where and when you do it. You and I do not have a license to consume alcohol however we please. The Bible's really clear about that. So, some people say, well, Jesus is at the wedding. He made the alcohol. Clearly, he's okay with it. To which I would quote J.C. Ryle, who said this, let us only remember that if we go where our master went, we must go in our master's spirit. So, look at what the rest of the scripture says. All right. The point, the major point. Jesus did something here that only God can do. That's John's point. John could have chosen many other miracles Jesus performed to be his first sign that proves Jesus is God. So why does he choose this one? Well, consider this. When we look at the act of creation in Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, that's 
pretty amazing, right? Consider this. Jesus doesn't touch the water. The Spirit of God's hovering over the water, right? Jesus doesn't touch the water. He doesn't say anything to the water. We don't have a recorded prayer to the Father for the water to be changed into wine. What that means is Jesus simply willed the change and it took place. <laughs> yeah. No prophet had ever done that before. And the person who could do such a mighty work in that way would be nothing less than God. Which brings us to the application. Jesus' first miracle is a wonder, but the point of the sign is that it requires faith in what is signified. It requires us to go, whoa, he is who he said he is. I believe. Lenski said this, and I'll leave it with you. Unbelief and disobedience thus become the greatest crime against the signs that John records. So what will your response be to John's first sign? Will you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you let your faith, if you do believe that, will you let your faith be made more solid like the disciples? Will you reject this sign and refuse to believe? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, we see this sign laid out for us here and it calls us to action. The disciples responded, but you call us to action now to trust you more if we already do or to make that step to trust you if we never have. And so Lord, as your people are responding to you, saying, Lord, I want to trust you more, whether it's with, with marriage or finances or parenting or life or the future, whatever it might be, Lord, we want to be those who just trust you. That even when we don't understand, or even when your commands might seem useless, like why would I go down and, and fill a jug with water? Lord, that we remember that you're the Son of God, or that you could do anything. And therefore, how you get to a destination doesn't have to look like how I can get to a destination because you can do the impossible. So Lord, we trust you more. And then with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here this morning and you have never made a decision to trust Christ and you say, I want to do that today, I do believe. If you're doing that right now, you're telling the Lord that I do believe. I choose to follow Jesus. I want to pray with you as you make that choice. So just lift your hand high because I'd love to pray with you as you make the decision to follow Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you're receiving Christ, just lift your hand up. Say, I want to follow Jesus. Anybody else this morning? Amen. Anybody else? Lord, you see every heart, every hand that's raised. And so for those who are receiving you right now are saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I don't want to go my own way anymore. I want to follow you. I'm going to trust you. You're the son of God. Lord, even now as they're doing that, would you come and live inside them by your spirit? Would you begin to help them to understand how much you love them, Lord, and what you, that you have a plan for them? And then, Lord, would you help them to understand your word as they read it and they seek to apply it to their lives? Would you help them to grow and to become more like you? And Lord, would you strengthen their faith, even as I pray you strengthen all of our faith this morning in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. amen.